Whenever you come to issues like this in the Bible or it deals with uh, divisions, somebody usually will bring up a question. Pastor, what do you think of all of the denominations? Is that a manifestation of what Paul is talking about? And I would uh, respond to that answer or to that question with um, an answer of no. I actually don't think denominations are a bad thing. I think they're actually good. And the reason is is because I think denominations allow us to worship with integrity. That's what I mean by that. Is when you look at a lot of denominations, some denominations will um, form over the issue of polity. Polity is um, how you rule a church. Some have bishops and some have um, elders and deacons and different things. And uh, you can look through scripture and uh, we're not all going to agree on that. And we're going to see some of us see certain more democracy and some see more elder led. And the reality is, is when we all get to heaven, I would imagine most of us in this room are probably going to have some things altered when we get to heaven. Anyone disagree? Okay, there's one guy who thinks he's perfect. That's okay. Um, And the fact is, is we're all going to get to heaven. I'm quite certain that you're going to get to heaven and go, oh, wow, God, that's what you meant. Oh, I didn't know that. And and because of that, we look at things like polity, how a church should be led. Uh, We look at the church like in issues of liturgy, worship. I think if you've spent any time in Latin America, when Latins come up to the United States, to be quite honest with you, they think our worship is, generally speaking, boring. You don't move enough. None of you left your, your chair and danced. And that's a sin in their mind. You, you need to dance. And, 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 and if you've been to Asian churches, and when they pray, oh, man, they just cut loose. Uh, They can't imagine that somebody would be up here praying and that they wouldn't pray. They pray. And and they would come into our church and they would ask the question, are you guys alive? And and so when we form these different denominations, I I think there's integrity to it because uh, people like different things. And I think whether it be polity or liturgy, worship and those forms, I think there's wonderful expression. And periodically, uh, I don't do it a lot because I'm usually here, but periodically I've gone to other churches and other worship expressions and I love them. I think they're wonderful. I happen to like this. I, I prefer this form of polity but the fact is is others i wouldn't necessarily say are wrong i think those expressions are legitimate and allow integrity in the body of christ what paul is talking about is not that i can take you to a city in uh, wyoming where there's eight different baptist churches and all of them came out of the same place eight different splits it's a mess during thanksgiving And the reason is because the church is made up of families and the families are all split and they have problems and it's a mess during Christmas. I've mediated more family issues up there in the city because I used to have that region and and it's just, it's a mess because they're positioning over authority and ruling and all kinds of problems. What, what causes those problems? The same thing that Paul is addressing here. Chloe, from the household of Chloe, a group of people went to Paul and they said, Paul, we've got a mess on our hands. What is it? And he goes, man, we, we, we've got fights all over our church. And Paul was addressing this issue and he noticed in their church and
find in churches today, not denominations that have a drive of the expression of worship, but rather pockets within churches where people are angry at each other, trying to get control over each other. And he noticed something that is true, and it's this, that human nature is always looking to divide over what they believe is most powerful. And in Paul's declaration, what they believe is most powerful is something that is more powerful than Christ. Something that is, has greater uniqueness than Jesus. Sadly, from Paul's perspective, some of them were actually lining up behind Paul. And they were saying, yep, we're the Paul tradition, the Pauline tradition. What were these folks? They were the ones frolicking in the liberty to which they could stretch Paul's grace. They were the people going, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. And man, they were singing it so much that one of the guys go, yep, God's grace is so great that I can sleep with my mother. What? Yeah, grace is so great, man. I can get drunk on Saturday and worship God on Sunday. They were preaching grace and it's like grace was so lavish. But what they were doing is they were reshaping the gospel. And they were landing behind Paul and they were taking Paul's words and they were pressing them to their nth degree. And there was another group. We call them the Apollinarian or Apollos' group. Paulus was a, a, a great orator. He came out of the tradition in Alexandria that would allegorize the gospel. What would they do? They would take a truth, any truth, and they would allegorize it, meaning that they were going for the deeper meaning. It's that person who's always, when they're teaching, they're going, well, let me show you what it really means. Let me show you what the Holy Spirit taught me about this passage it's the individual who always has the secret juice it's kind of like in and out you know that hamburger joint (laughs) people i'm not an in and out person i mean I, i don't have anything against them but but people tell me it's like you can't look at the menu you have to know the secret menu that's like is this like the Mason group or something like that? It's like, what do you mean that the secret group? It's like, well, yeah, you know, the, the, the menu. And it's like, man, anyone that allegorizes their food, that's a sin. Get out of here. I mean, if they can't write it and they're not proud of it, if you have to have a secret menu, I'm not in. I just need to read it. Okay, good. Let's go. But what, what happens in that is you have this, you know, I gotta, when I go to In-Out, I gotta take one of the specialists on our staff that know the secret menu. And that's what they did in this church. If you wanna know the deeper meaning, you gotta get one of the individuals from the inside group. What a great way to arrest control. What a great way to create an inside and an outside. What a great way to kind of, uh, who's the leader of this group? It's whoever has the inside or whoever has the deeper meaning. You're shallow. You, you only 
know what's written, but if you really know what this word means, if you really know what the Holy Spirit is teaching, allegorization looks for the mystical meaning. Well, understandably, there's another group of people in there, probably most interestingly enough, reacting to Paul's group, and that is the Petrine or Peter's group. Peter was a Jewish guy. And we understand from the book of Galatians that Peter, um, after he was saved, walked with Jesus, he kind of had a, if you will, a a, a season in his life where he kind of backslid, if you will. And he kind of went back into his Jewish roots. He had some friends who said, you know, Peter, this is a grace thing. He's taking it too far. I mean, he said, you know, God gave us the law and the circumcision and all of that stuff for a good reason. I don't think we should leave that. We can, uh, you know, practice that and add the gospel. I mean, after all, it's been good for the nation of Israel for, you know, a couple thousand years, right? And so Peter was getting swayed back into that. In fact, if you read the book of Galatians, Paul one time went in with Peter and Peter was meeting with a group of his friends and Paul comes into Peter and he accuses him and says, Peter, who's bewitched you? You, you forfeited the gospel. Well, what were these folks doing? They were taking any opportunity they could to emphasize this more legalistic view of Christianity. Uh, they defined themselves by what they were against. They nailed down the behavior that they hated and they were forever chasing around the Pauline grace people accusing them of what soft grace soft gospel forever telling them ah you don't take the gospel seriously you are just justifying your sin and so they were fighting all the time you've probably heard that you've seen it in today's Christendom And then finally, there was this group of people, uh, and you can kind of see it in in churches today. It's like, I don't care about Paul. I don't care about Apollos. I don't give a rip about Peter. I just want Jesus. What causes this? Well, what Paul noticed is that human nature seems to enjoy emphasizing the messenger above the message. Why? Because I can control the messenger. I can control the messenger. I can leverage the messenger. And what is at the heart of this division is the desire to define my life by something other than Christ. If I can do that, then I can create a who's in and who's out. I can create a who's superior and who's inferior. I've witnessed it sometimes with Bible study even, curriculum. People who enjoy certain Bible studies. It'll go something like this. Uh, somebody will say, hey, do you want to come and join our Bible study? Some, it's a national curriculum. It's like, and, and they'll say things like, you know, if you're really serious about studying the Bible, you'll join ours, our group. Because we're serious. We, we, we do a certain method of Bible study. And everyone else is just chump cheese. It's like, really? I mean, you you want to gain a leverage of superiority simply over your method of studying the Bible? Why don't you study humility? It might look good on you. But they don't do that. Why? Because what they're trying to do is make themselves look good. Gain a leverage. Impress others. I take the Bible seriously. I'm committed to the word of God. And that's what can cause division. There's a word. We don't like to use it. 
But at the real core of this whole issue of division is what? Pride. Pride is at the heart of division. It's that desire to define my life by something other than Christ. To give my life uniqueness. To give my life power. To give my life superiority over another person. That's what Paul saw in these folks. And my friends, it's susceptible to all of us. We're always susceptible to wanting to land somewhere, to grab some subject, to grab a person, to align our hearts behind a method, a message, other than the gospel, other than Christ. Paul responds to this church and to us. I want to help you repudiate division. I want to help you destroy it. Because it's destructive to the church. It's harmful to you. How do we do it? Paul says it's the wisdom of God that's going to get you there. For the message of the cross is foolishness, he says in verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness. It's what I want to bring to you, he says. He's not changed subjects. What he's given you is an antidote. What he's given you is a solution to what? The issue of pride and division in the church. And there's two things that he's going to separate these out. So the wisdom of God is manifested in two places. It's, it's hidden though. It's not out in the open. It's, it's, it's almost like a secret. It's, it's, it's in a way kind of kept from the normal eye. It, it, it's not, it, the wisdom of God doesn't come in the normal way. You, you folks bring wisdom out in the open. You brag about it. You leverage it. You, you, you try and use it in a form of superiority. God brings his wisdom in a way that's hidden. Two ways. Number one, first of all, he hides his power in weak people. I want to start with the second one and then I'll come back to the first one. In the first or the second one, he's, he talks about people and he begins that in verse 26. He says, brothers, think of what you once were. Think of it when you were called. In other words, when you were saved. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. And not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things. <laughs> I.e. you. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world. And the despised things. The things that are not. To nullify the things that are. So that no one can boast before him. You want to destroy division? Embrace the path of God. What is it? God doesn't work the way the world does. The world looks for powerful people. The Lord, word, or, you know, the world looks for uh, eloquent speakers. God looks for weak people. He's always been doing that. For 2,000 years, Paul says, all the way back to the very beginning, God looks for the voiceless. God looks for the refugees. God looks for the individual that is not powerful. God looks for the person who is not of noble descent. 
We, we have been watching the, the queen and her family. And, and with all due respect, that's not where God starts. Paul makes a point of it. Folks, look around the church to the Corinth church and look around to us. He said, hey, uh, God doesn't make a habit of going after the rich and famous. Now, I'm not sure why, but to be quite honest with you, the evangelical church does not get this one, and I wonder if we ever will. I wonder if we will ever get the idea of how God works. Because we're forever begging and pleading and hoping that we get the right guy in the White House. And we're forever, ever giving ourselves away. I can remember over the years number of times when Kate Goslin and Kate plus eight was came on the scene and we were like oh this is going to advance the gospel and whenever we think that with Hollywood it hasn't borne out I remember when uh, Rick Warren nothing against Rick Warren at all but I remember when he uh, hosted the presidential debate we were like wow evangelicals have landed on the scene of the presidential debate and last I checked it didn't make one iota of a difference in the advancement of the kingdom of God Passion of the Christ came out it's a good movie I saw it a number of times But it didn't change the trajectory of the church. Prior to the Passion of the Christ, we had a 0% conversion growth rate in the United States. Past uh, that movie, The Passion of the Christ, we still have a 0% conversion growth rate. In fact, we have moved into a negative number, meaning we are receiving less people that are in terms of coming to Christ than this country is growing in its percentage. We're losing the battle. It hasn't changed. Maybe the most powerful message that has been sent out to this nation in the last 10, 15 years was sent by a group of people that most people drive by and laugh at when they look at them. It was a group of Amish people whose children were killed And who taught the entire country what it looks like to forgive. That made a difference. Paul says, you want to repudiate? You want to get rid of division? Understand the way God works. He comes to the slow. He comes to the people who are not on the inside. He comes to the uncoordinated. He comes to the refugees. He comes to the the rejected. And he enters into their life. Does that mean you shouldn't run for office? No, run. Does that mean you shouldn't be on the school board? No, get on the school board. It means, my friends, that that's not our hope. Our hope is not to recruit powerful people so that the gospel can advance our hope is that we get how God works he hides his power in weak people and he advances his gospel in ways 
that the world doesn't recognize and affects often thinks is foolish. It just happens to work. Secondly, Paul says that God hides his power in weak preaching. Verse 21, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Through the foolishness of what was preached. Paul wants to make sure that we get this point. So he goes further in chapter 2, one, verse 1 and following. And when he says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message, my preaching, they were not with wise and persuasive words. It's not that he was untrained, and it was not that he was uneducated. The guy had an education from Harvard. But he meant what he said. When I come to you, I didn't use eloquent words. I didn't try to impress you. Why? Because eloquent words don't save an individual. I came to you in weakness and fear, with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Division is when we try and find power on a worldly standard. And Paul says, if you want to destroy division in the body of Christ, you'll understand the way God works. He finds weak people and he uses weak preaching. He uses this weak vehicle called preaching to transform people's lives. What do I mean by weak vehicle? Carrie and I, the other night, uh, we went to a movie, uh, Top Gun. It's a good movie. A lot of action. 152 million dollars to make that lot of action. 152 million. That's a 131 minute movie, then it takes 152 million to make that movie. That means it's slightly over a million dollars a minute to make that movie. I started looking up the budgets of other modern day movies. They don't touch a movie nowadays for over 100 million. And then I started looking at the budget for this week's sermon. Hundred and thirty one minutes at a million a pop, just let's just round it up. It's you know, a little more than that. And I thought, huh, I wonder what are we I'm gonna preach for about thirty-five minutes. I'll try and do it in thirty-four today. But um uh what's the investment? Well it's probably I'm gonna say about four cups of coffee, some printer ink, um my iPad, which um they Spread out over four years. I preach about 48 times a week. Three sermons a weekend. You math wizards figure this one out. Um, You can tell me after the service. Please don't text me. Enough of you texting me already in the middle of my sermon. I've gotten four of them already. And I'm like, why are you trying to text me in the middle of my message? But you do. 
And so you take this little gizmo that it costs, um, you know, 800 some dollars and you spread that out. And here's my point. You, you got it. We don't invest a lot. It's a joke, isn't it? How on earth are we ever going to compete with a, a million dollars a minute? And then Paul reminds us. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. But my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. But were with a demonstration of the spirit's power. There was a denomination that recently did a study. Of all the people in their denomination that were working in the area of poverty and justice. And they interviewed them all, all over the world. And they asked them this question, why are you here? What motivated you to come here? And now you silly people are texting me like crazy. I love you too. Why are you giving your life and to the person around the world? You know what they said? There was a day I was sitting in church and the pastor preached a sermon and God spoke to me. There was a day I was sitting in a community group, a Sunday school class. We were studying the word of God and the teacher was teaching and God spoke to me. And I realized as I was studying this text and reading that article, what Paul was trying to say. I liked the movie Top Gun. It's a good movie. But I guarantee you there's not one person that's going to walk out of that movie that's going to move from death to life. There's not one demoniac that's going to leave that movie theater and is going to be delivered. Not one. There's not going to be one man that walks in there, a porn addict, and walks out of there and says, I am free and I'm going to live with faithfulness with my wife the rest of my life. Not one is going to do that, I guarantee you. And there's not going to be one 35-year-old young lady who was abused when she was 10 years of age and scarred and wounded is going to walk out of that movie and say, I am healed and I can finally give myself to my husband with a joy and peace in my heart. Not one. I'm not against the movie. I enjoyed it. But let's put things in perspective. Sometimes we argue over things and get behind things that have no power. And that's Paul's point. I appeal to you, dear brothers, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Did Tom Cruise die for you? Did this worship style die for you? Was this worship style on the cross for you? Dear friends, understand what has power. The wisdom of God repudiates division. Why? 
because Paul says only the cross of Christ has the ability to take a person from death unto life. And when you and I stand at the base of the cross, it is there that our hearts are unified. And it is there that we stand on the level playing field. And it is there, my friends, our hearts are brought together. And it is that place where all division is destroyed. Why would God hide his power in weak people and weak preaching? Let me take you back to a place that all of us lived. Back to the day when my childhood died. I was in the sixth grade. And I discovered something in the sixth grade that my guess is you did too. I discovered in the sixth grade that the world was not a level place. What do I mean by that? I mean that in the sixth grade, I discovered that if you were an athlete, you had a decided advantage in this world. You just did. If you, if you were a, a really good athlete, you had friends that other people didn't have. If you were a really good athlete, people wanted you on their team when others didn't. If you were a really good athlete, when they lined you up and made selections, you were first. And if you were slow, you better be good looking. In a world I grew up in, probably like the world you grew up in, athletes have a decided advantage. And in the world that I grew up in, in the sixth grade, I also discovered that looks make a difference. Now, I know Harvard did a study on this, and it cost them millions of dollars to do it. I could have done it for about a buck. (laughs) Good-looking people have a decided advantage in this world. I learned that in the sixth grade. Good-looking people have friends that other people don't have. Good-looking people get invited to sit at the table for lunch where ugly people don't. Good-looking people get selected to be on teams when the teacher breaks up the teams and doesn't organize the teams and just says, you guys make your own teams. And if you're not a good-looking person and you're not an athlete, you're terrorized that the teacher just says, go make your own teams. It's a frightening day. And I watched some of the non-athletes and some of the not so great looking people walked to the edges of the room and hoped no one would notice them and hated going to school. In the sixth grade, I discovered that the world is not a level playing field. I also discovered in the sixth grade Probably a little earlier than this, but it crystallized in the sixth grade. I knew it, man. I'll tell you what I knew it. If you were smart, let me tell you what, the world came easier to you. It's just a different world if you're smart. Acquisition of information and education is just a different ball game. And when you learn and you learn quicker and you learn faster, um, and, and I'm not down on teachers. I love teachers. I was one and I am one. But to be quite honest with you, teachers relate different to smarter students. And by the way, 
peers relate different to smarter students. When you have a project, everyone wants you on the team. And when that project is 50% of your grade, they really want you on the team. I also learned in the sixth grade that if you have really, really wealthy parents, they can put you on teams and they can get you coaches and they can give you an advantage that if you have a mom that lives below poverty, she is lucky to put food in front of you. In the sixth grade, I became really, really convinced that the world is not a level playing field. And by the way, I'm 60 and that hasn't changed. And so when I look at Jesus' life, I realize he had everything. He had position, he had power. He had everything that this world longs for. And he walked away from it. The father told him, I'm going to send you to the earth and I'm going to hide you. I'm going to hide your glory and I'm going to hide your, your beauty and your strength. And I'm going to put you in the form of a child. I'm going to raise you. And no one's going to know who you are. They're going to miss you. In our world, you're the second person in the Trinity. In that world, you're a nobody. You're going to lose it all and we're going to hide you. They're going to spit at you and they're going to mock you and they're going to treat you like a nobody because in their mind, you are a nobody. I'm going to hide you and I'm not going to let them know who you are. God, why do you do that? Why didn't you just come out with it? Why didn't you just say, here's Jesus. He's my son. Believe in him or I'll annihilate you and torture you. It's what I'd have done if I were God. I'd still like to do that periodically. (laughs) To be quite honest with you, it's a good thing I'm not God. I'd have probably torched myself. Because God understands the power of weakness. And he understands the power of the cross. And he understands that when he died on the cross, he died for you. And he gave you the opportunity today to receive that forgiveness. Not because he forces you. Because he gives you the opportunity to trust him by faith. The wisdom of God eliminates division. Why? Because God surprises a world by displaying his power through weakness. And when you and I make our way to the foot of the cross, there the world is a level playing field. And it doesn't matter if you're beautiful, if you're fast, if you have rich parents, or if you're smart. It only matters if you trust the one who forfeited it all for you. And only there, if you will make much of Jesus, 
will you look to your left and to your right and see a brother or a sister and understand you have nothing on them and they have nothing on you. You both need Jesus. That's why God hides Jesus. Jesus.